Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. Today, we have our Chief Science Officer, Dr. Brandon Roberts, coming on the show. Brandon has his PhD. He is a CSCS, so he is the, in my opinion, the highest qualified individual to truly give the most educational information about physique transformation, whether we're talking nutrition, training, strength, muscle growth, it doesn't matter. Brandon is pretty well versed in it because that's what he does for a living. He doesn't only he doesn't only just conduct research, he actually reviews a ton of research. So he's constantly looking into research, he's constantly writing about research, he's doing research, um, and, and it makes me really excited because we have him on the team now. He is a part of Tailored Coaching Method, he is our CSO, and he is here to not only deliver educational information and content for you because he is writing blogs as well as jumping on the podcast with me on a monthly basis, but he's also here for our members inside of our private group to make sure they have their questions answered. And he's here for our coaches to make sure that our coaches have the latest research to stay as well educated and practicing the most sound principles inside of our coaching. So I'm really excited about this because it's something I've been working on creating in our business for a while now. It's something I've always wanted to do as part of growing this team and being the best coaching company in the industry and that's always been my goal and this is just one more step in that direction and I'm really excited to introduce you guys to him. So today you're going to learn a little bit more about Brandon, what he does um, and what he is bringing to the table for us at Tailored Coaching Method, the impact he is going to create with us Um, but we're also going to dive into some specific topics, a little bit about diet breaks, a little bit about carbohydrate ratios inside of a diet. Uh, some competition prep stuff. We're going to talk about um, a couple specific studies that we wanted to review today and kind of go over because they're applicable to you. So you're going to get a little bit of everything, not only the origin story of our CSO, but you're also going to hear some actual science from us today. And I think it's a good dialogue between the two of us going back and forth. Um, Before we get in the show, I just want to mention one last thing because I always do. And I think it's important for you guys to be able to stay up to date with all the stuff that we do. Um, So I want you to head over to Instagram and follow Brandon. His uh, Instagram name is at brob underscore 21. I'm going to link that in the description of this sh- the this podcast as well. Make sure you take a screenshot of this episode if you like it. Post on your story. Tag us both. Mine is at cody.boomboom. Him is, uh, his is at brob underscore 21. We want to see who's listening. We want to thank you for listening and consuming our content. We want to share it on our story as well. Um, and we love feedback. So please, please do reach out to us if you have any questions about any of the stuff that we talk about today. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to this amazing episode with our CSO, Dr. Brandon Roberts. All right. So I'm super excited about this one. We are live. We are recording, by the way, um, because you are the chief science officer of Tailored Coaching Method now. Um, and I'm really excited about this. This is something that's been, as we discussed on the phone weeks ago, something that's been on my mind for a long time. And I've, I've watched other companies implement similar things. And I've seen other companies not implement this type of thing. And I see the direction of both. Um, and I'm super happy that we're practicing what we preach and we're doing everything we can to just keep bringing higher levels of education and research and quality information to what we do 
Um, and your, your first blog just came out on the website. So I'll link that in the show notes as well, which we've been getting a ton of great feedback on already. Um, and I'm excited that we're going to be able to have you on the podcast once a month to just dive even deeper into stuff. So um, without any further ado, welcome Brandon Roberts to the podcast. Ah, thanks for having me, Cody. And thanks for bringing me on the team. You know, I, I was looking into TCM and uh, after your call and I was like, wow, these guys got their shit together. Um, so, you know, I thought it was a great opportunity to kind of jump in and um, having someone with what kind of my background um, is helpful, but you know, the coaches do the hard work, the people at the forefront of the company that are the image, right? I'm just kind of like the nerd in the back who's like, no, no, don't do that. Yeah, yeah, do that. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I'm looking forward to it for sure. Yeah, I love it, man. It was it was cool having the conversation with you um, and then having the second conversation with you because I could tell that you were more interested after you had a chance to do research. And that meant a lot to me because I respect you and I've been respecting all the stuff that you put out. So knowing that somebody of your standard is like, okay, these guys passed pass the quota, like this is good shit. Um, that means a lot to me. And, and, and like you said, like I think everybody, I like how you put it like a nerd in the background doing that. But I think that if you don't have a nerdy side to yourself inside this industry, I think there's a problem, you know what I mean? Cause that's where the passion for more education comes. And I think it's so important for people to just be constantly evolving. I see a lot of companies that don't prioritize furthering education. And I think that's such a problem because out of all the industries in the, in the world, this industry is constantly evolving. The amount of stuff that changes inside of training and nutrition over time is just insane. So it's really important to stay up on the, the most, current research but then also just constantly trying to evolve as a coach to get better and better at your practice yeah yeah definitely um and we i think we've seen a, a good shift in those who are keeping up um into the kind of evidence-based fitness realm um and you've almost seen like a little bit of a backswing now but you know science is there to support us our coaching our practices uh we can from a lot of different bodies of literature right so maybe you want to be a physique athlete or maybe you just want to like look good right well you can take a couple things from the obese literature obesity literature a couple things from the like strength conditioning literature um, and you can kind of combine those and say all right well maybe we don't have the full picture and exactly what i want to be but i've got some evidence to suggest this might work so let's let's try it um, so that's that's the goal yeah, hundred percent. So before, before we actually dive into your story, that actually brings up a really good question that I'd like to ask you. And I've asked a couple other people on the podcast, cause I always love getting people's opinion on this. Um, but your definition of evidence-based, what does that actually mean in the coaching practice? So in the coaching practice, it's different than, um, like the medical realm, right? So I think there's a big distinction there because in coaching, we deal with an N of one every single time. Like you may have some group coaching or whatnot, but you're basically looking at a very small amount of people. Um, and so you can have these wild variations, right? Uh, now, like a medical doctor's looking at, especially if he's specialized, looking at the same type of patient over and over and over and over. So he has a, a set of practices. Uh, but I think for us, evidence-based practice is just taking some scientific background, some evidence of, you know, we think this will work and applying it to our clients, our athletes, ourselves, um, and then adapting within certain ranges, right? So if we, if we have you know, evidence to suggest, and we do, that a high protein intake helps muscle growth, great. Now, the range is probably somewhere between 1.6 and 2.1 grams per kilogram. That's a pretty big range. 
Um, so if we start at 1.6 and we're like, all right, well, I'm in my evidence-based recommendations, but I'm not seeing much. Maybe I go up to like 1.8 and that's the coaching aspect. It's like the ability to change things rather than just from a scientific perspective, measure them. Got it. Okay. So, and what are your thoughts on evidence? When we look at evidence-based, I guess the way I'm trying to frame this is evidence isn't just research. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like it, yeah. I think a lot of people assume that like, if you are evidence-based, it just means that you're literally taking research and you are applying it to your coaching and you, it's like, it's the doctor and you have to follow that exactly. But I think people forget that, you know, there's a lot of things that can't be researched or nobody will fund the researching on. So we have to look at our own coaching over the years and be like, okay, what's happening? Because everything we experience is actually evidence as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think one, one thing that comes to mind off the top of my head is cues, right? So we have all these cues that we can give our clients and we test them repeatedly, right? So we build a, an evidence base of, you know, I think when someone squats, I should give them the cue of, you know, chest up because it'll make their hips sit back more, right? Or something like that. Right. Um, so yeah, that experience is, is critical. And you look at the leaders in kind of in-person training for sure. Uh, and you see, you go talk to them and they're like, well, try this or try that. And it's like, well, how do you know? It's like, well, I've just done it forever. <laughs> so that's definitely evidence for sure. Yeah, I think there's, you have to give a little bit of credit to some of the bro science. Obviously there's some bro science that is just, out of this world that you shouldn't follow, but um, I think that's important. So uh, I, I do, because this is our podcast, introducing you to the podcast and to the brand and everything, I do want to dive into your story just a little bit. So can you fill in the listeners with, I mean, how you even start all this? Like why get into fitness and then why take it so far as to chase your PhD? Because that's, you've, you've kind of accomplished the highest level of like fitness nerd that you can possibly accomplish, you know? And I think that um, when I look up to people who I'm, taking information from i mean we, we got introduced basically through eric trexler which is somebody that i would consider your colleague um people like him eric helms just happened to be two eric's greg knuckles people like that i'm looking at and they're kind of accomplishing this this level like you of being a researcher being able to apply the research being able to teach the research and i think it's so important uh, but what made you go down that path what made you chase it that far yeah so um I kind of started in undergrad and I knew I wanted to do some hard science. So I was like, okay, well, I chose molecular biology because it kind of sets you up to do pretty much anything deep science-based. Um, and so I was a fitness fanatic during that time. I, did, I was not competing in bodybuilding or anything, but I you know, went to the gym five or six days a week. I was very, very bro, right? And, and I loved it. And I made a lot of my like, beginner gains during that period. And then when I realized, kind of looking at grad school, I was like, all right, well, I don't really want to necessarily leave academia yet. I, I, I feel like I don't know enough, but I really love this fitness thing. So how can, I, you know, how can I move in that direction coming from a deep science background where, you know, I couldn't even walk in a gym and get a job because I didn't have an extra science degree or, you know, any real experience in that area. And so I did my, my master's in human performance. And that's when they started to kind of, meld together so the deep science and the fitness realm um, and there I learned you know best practices I started training people in person um, that was a two-year program and during that time I really fell in love with um, muscle biology which is a lot of what I do now uh, and I said well you know I'm not quite there yet because during my PhD I was studying muscle loss right and nobody wants to lose muscle we want to stop that from happening but 
that still wasn't my passion. Uh, so I spent four, four years at a PhD, um, did very well. I think I had a good, a good mentor, uh, continued training other people during that time. Right. So that's like six years of training people now in person. Um, and so that's when I realized I was like, Oh, well, you know, I've, I've kind of reached the pinnacle, but I'm, <laughs> this is funny because most people don't, don't realize this, but I actually took it a step further. Um, and so in academia, you can do a postdoc, which is basically a, a couple years of training under someone where you learn even more. Uh, you don't get a degree or anything. It's just like a, a post PhD. Um, and so during that time, I realized I couldn't, I couldn't train in person anymore because the time just wouldn't allow it, but I could train online. And so I started at the end of my PhD training people online. Um, and I've been doing that for about five years now. Um, but I started moving more towards kind of the physique realm, the resistance training realm in my postdoc. And that's kind of where I've just finished and now have this just love of molecular and applied sciences to strength conditioning, physique sport. Um, and you can see it through my publication record. I just do a little bit of everything that I really enjoy. So that's kind of how I, how I got there. Can you explain uh, muscle biopsy? Like what is that and like how, are you, how do you study that and what are you studying? Because I think a lot of people hear that. Um, they hear a lot of these different terms and I don't think they truly understand what it is on the deepest level. Can you just give us that in a nutshell? Yeah, yeah. So, so I'll define muscle biology and, and what a muscle biopsy is because they're very related. Um, so muscle biology is just studying how muscle adapts to different things. Uh, it could be inactivity, right? So you say you break your arm and you're in a cast. Well, there's a set of molecular events that happen. So we have transcription factors and some um, biology that goes on that causes you to lose muscle, right? So if we could, for example, give you a drug that would stop that, that would be awesome. Now on the other side, uh, a different set of events happens when we gain muscle. So you hear, you've probably heard about like mTOR or things like that. Um, so you can look at those within muscle and say, oh, well, in this training program, you know, we see a 10% increase, but in this one, we see a hundred percent increase. And that means that even though we may not do a long-term study, we can kind of say that this other training technique that causes a hundred percent increase is better. Um, and the way we really get at muscle biology is we either do animal studies, which I've kind of moved away from, or we take muscle biopsies. And muscle biopsies, I don't have a pen on me, um, but are basically where you shove a needle into someone's leg, you take a piece of their muscle, right? So you're not getting, this is why you don't see many physique athlete athletes getting muscle biopsies, because they're taking a piece of muscle out of you, and they're going to grind it up and look at all those pathways and say, what's up, what's down, um, how are things changing compared to kind of like normal? So that's the essence of muscle biology. And if you've never had a muscle biopsy, they're not that bad, but they do actually take muscle out of your body. Have you so, had one before? I have. Yes. Okay. They, um, they're not too bad, but cause they, you get like numbed up and stuff. It's right. Not, it's not. Is, is this where, uh, we are studying, uh, muscle fiber types and things like that. I know Andy Galpin has been huge on all that. I'm assuming that's how he is getting that information. Yeah, yeah. So you can look at muscle fiber types. You have the, the two or three or five different types, depending on what you look at. Um, you can look at kind of 
force levels. So you could tease out one muscle and you could say, you know, I got a one muscle piece from a bodybuilder and I have one from a power lifter, which one's stronger, like compared to size and then which one's just stronger, right? Usually the, the power lifter is stronger. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that allows us to think, to just look at the muscle um, and like muscle has fat in it so we can look at the fat within the muscle um it has mitochondria it has all of these components of a normal normal cell right um the i think the coolest thing about muscle is that it is multinucleated which is it's only one of two tissues who have multiple nucleus in a cell which means that it can send lots of messages but also it's muscle cells are huge like they can run really big distances in your body it's just one big cell with a lot of nuclei do you have any opinion on this uh topic of this is actually something that's funny because i i wanted to ask you about this uh the other day i was thinking about this i read i can't remember what i read i think it was just a simple post but it was it was somebody's opinion on all the stuff they're studying with muscle fibers um and then back in the day there used to be like this really hard train of thought that a lot of people had with training different body parts in different ways based on the the fiber dominance right so if something is more fast twitch dominant like like the hamstrings for example let's do mm -hmm. like low reps let's do explosive stuff let's do things like that because that's how that muscle is going to build most and then this muscle is more slow twitch so do high reps with it do you think there is any and now that stuff's actually coming out on this topic do you think there's any value in that or are we still at a point where it's like it's probably best to just do a little bit of both in every muscle group as far as rep ranges go yeah, I, I don't think we're there quite yet. We're getting there and you know, in five or six years we might have enough evidence to, to say, you know, if we want to hypertrophy things and we know that reps don't really matter, these couple studies say that if we're higher rep range here, maybe it's better. So I'm willing to do that. Right. So I, I think that's the best we're gonna get for now. But again, I mean if you're going close to failure and getting enough volume then like you can kind of do whatever you want yeah and i think that's that's kind of like the i feel like and this is actually funny because i feel like a lot of research has been showing this even in nutrition like it almost seems like the more and more research we do the more and more we realize that it's really just calories that matter you know and it's and it's and for a lot of people they hate that and i'll be the first to say like i wish there was some cool sexy strategy that would like no just do this style and it'll solve it. You know what I mean? Like it's this one. Yeah. Trip. Um, Cause we would all love that. It'd be cool, but that's just not the case. And I think the closest thing to that, um, which I've been really fascinated with is all the information Danny Lennon has been putting out with chrono nutrition, because mm -hmm. it's kind of flipping the calorie model around, not completely, but just showing that like maybe nutrient timing does play a bigger role than we once thought. Because for a while people were like, it doesn't matter at all. Don't worry about timing your food, just hit your calories, which I think is kind of swinging too far in one direction. Yeah, and you see that in, in the fitness realm especially, and it happens in the research too. Um, in research, there's generally two camps for little, like everything for some reason. There's never like three or four. There's usually just two. Um, yeah. So you have the, the seco camp and the like the other camp who's like, no, a calorie is not a calorie. But I, I do wish there was some magical diet we could give people. Um, and that's kind of why the ketogenic diet got so popular was because it blunted hunger so much and it's like well if i'm not hungry i'm not going to eat and well that seems to work for a little while but um roping back to your uh, danny lennon, lennon chrononutrition i do think there's something there i was actually in a 
a seminar last Friday. We call it uh, Friday Night Pints, <laughs> and it's a bunch of scientists get around and just talk science for like an hour. Um, and one of the leading researchers on intermittent fasting and time-restricted feeding was presenting. And she was like, you know, we're running these studies now where we think that what Danny said actually is, is probably true, where if you, you shift your calories more towards the morning, you have maybe a potential for burning more or some positive effect. Now, we don't know that all the way yet, but I mean, if there's a chance that it'll help, I'm willing to try it because ultimately I'm going to stay within the same calorie range anyway. Yeah, 100%. I think it, it's one of those things too where, because I've had, because I had Danny on and we talked about chronic nutrition, did a really good job at breaking it down. And I had a lot of questions of like, when is it appropriate to start implementing those kind of things? And I always tell people like, there's really this, this hierarchy of importance in Eric Helms did a really good job of job of like founding that years ago and showing like the different stages. And I think it's important to look at that, but most importantly is to look at adherence first. So even if you're trying to bridge from one level to the next or implement a new strategy or, or change your timing or add a supplement or anything like that, you always have to go back to like, can you adhere to it? Right. Because maybe you do burn a little bit more calories, your energy expenditure is higher. So your maintenance level can be higher if you have more calories in the morning. However, you always have more stress at night and you end up craving food. I would say, Hey, let's just save calories for night. Then have a smaller yeah. breakfast so you can save room and then adhere better. Cause that's always going to kind of take precedence over it. Yeah, definitely. And when you look at nutrition studies, the dropout rate and the adherence rate are not that high. Like they're not much different than probably what most of our athletes are seeing. Like, you know, we actually have more dedicated people than what are in these studies where you see a dropout rate of like 30% and adherence rate of like 60%. So, you know, you have to be really careful about that and then how you apply it too. Well, I think a lot of people don't even pay attention to that part of the study either. So they'll be like, well, like this study says this and it's like, well, did you see how many people dropped out? And that might be a red yeah. flag of like, it worked, but at what expense? Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually reviewing a study um, for examine right now where we're comparing, or they compared, kind of intermittent dieting to like a straight diet. So you would either diet every other day really hard or just diet a little bit each day. Um, and I'm, I'm not done with it yet, but it's like the dropout rate in the hard diet every other day was like double. And it's like, well, okay, so if I'm gonna lose half my population to that, I'm, I'm probably gonna rethink it a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, hundred um, percent. That actually brings up another. I'm gonna love these podcasts, man, because I'm just gonna keep thinking of like all these things I can run by you. Um, so something that I've been a big proponent of, my whole team has, has been diet breaks. Um, we have seen amazing success with it in athletes and general population, just because it allows people to take a break from the diet, and we see better adherence. We see we can't really test to say like, Oh, physiologically speaking, like you are improving metabolic adaptation or hormonal adaptation or anything like that. But based on your biofeedback and your stress level, sleep levels, all these things, like I would probably predict that that's the case. However, there's some people coming out now who are basically saying that diet breaks don't actually work. Like it's just a mental thing. Um, it's just a psych psychological break. There is no hormonal or you don't even need it at all. Like what is your opinion on all this? Because I hear these arguments and they're from people I really respect. And I'm like, it's a very solid argument. Like it makes sense what you're saying, your reasoning. I understand that. But my experience and going back to the whole evidence-based thing, I'm like my experience with working with, I mean, we work with hundreds of people every month. Yep. It's working. So like, where do we find this balance there? Yeah. So the, the diet break 
like field is not very deep, right? So you've got a couple studies, a couple small studies. Um, you probably don't have studies set up exactly how you're using it either. Like maybe, so Bill Campbell just came out with a study and I, I, I briefly read it, so I don't want to talk too much about it. Um, but it's on my, my um, analysis list. Uh, but yeah, so I think mentally, if they help, which they help me tremendously, um, there's no reason not to use them. I, I, physiologically, maybe we don't have evidence and maybe we won't ever have evidence and then maybe it's just a mental thing and that's totally okay. Like, I'm going to use all my tools and like I said, if it helps your clients, then that's the goal anyway. Yeah, and I think what... Uh... It's funny that you mentioned Bill Campbell because he he sent it to me right when it came out. And I remember saying like, dude, this is awesome. Like, I'm glad you did this because these are the kind of studies that we need more of. And he was like, uh, feel free to rip it apart because everybody else seems to be doing that. And I just said, I was like, man, I think that's always going to happen with a study because no study can be perfect. And you're always, people are always going to say like, well, you should have done this or you should have changed this. And it's like, okay, there's always something that can be changed. Like, are you the one doing the study? Like, I don't think so. Um, but one thing I noticed with him and I believe that they saw, uh, a better rate of muscle maintenance during the cut. Right. And I, I would say like, if that is happening, at least performance is staying at a higher level. And if that's happening, you're maintaining more muscle and like, maybe even like some of these things I'm thinking of like, okay, maybe it's just psychological. Maybe it's just performance being held up better, but nonetheless, indirectly it still is helping physiologically speaking because you're probably going to end in a healthier better physique at the end of it and that's still like you know what i mean so people are so focused on well we didn't see a rise in leptin on that that diet and and i think they're kind of missing the forest for the trees if that makes sense yeah yeah and oh man well i'll i'll do like a mini blog about leptin sometime because the time the time you test it matters so much it's crazy yeah um anyway yeah you're also looking for in in these shorter studies, like eight, 10, 12 weeks. I mean, yeah, we will probably diet that long. Like the 12 week diet's pretty standard for a mini cut or a little bit longer than a mini cut, maybe like a midi cut. Um, but if you can get some advantage or perceived advantage, then let's let's try it. I, I, tr I tear up a lot of studies. I, re I peer review probably like three studies a month. Um, but that doesn't mean that I don't think they're important. I think it's like, well, in peer review, it's let's make this even better or at least tell people more clearly what's wrong with it. And that, and that's okay. Every study, like you said, has flaws and, and you can't design the perfect study. Um, you just want to make sure that whatever question they're trying to get at or what they're trying to say from the data matches what the data actually says. Um, and usually it does, so that's that's good. But um, yeah, I mean, I I think we need a lot more studies that are a little more realistic for people to apply. Yeah, I would agree. And I think this this actually is going to kind of lead us into the the research that we're going to cover today. But I think that um, you know both of the studies you sent over my way that we're going to talk about were done on physique athletes. And one thing I tell a lot of coaches that are looking to just build their business or build their coaching practice is to study bodybuilders. Like I see a lot of people that are like, well, I just work with everyday people. And I'm like, okay, but who is the absolute best at getting rid of body fat and maintaining muscle, which is, is a form of maintaining health in a sense. 
bodybuilders. So study what they do and do it at a less extreme variation or just not as long of a, of a cut because sometimes preps can, I mean, now like preps are a year long compared to like back in yeah. the day. When I did my prep, you bought a 12 week prep. <laughs> That's yeah. what it was. Um, but now there it's just like 36 weeks, 48 weeks. It's just like goes up and up. Um, but point being is you can just kind of not do it at such an extreme and that's probably going to be the best bet for them. Now, some things you might not, I, I tell people you might not have to get as strict, but at the end of the day, I think most bodybuilders naturally just eat like bros. So you don't really have to promote them to be strict. We know flexible dieting works anyway. Um, but the reason I'm saying this is because I love the, the research that you sent me and I, and I've loved, uh, I believe you were a part of a research study, correct? That was done on bodybuilders as well. I think you did it with. So Eric we did. Um, yeah. So I led a review and it, and I mean, it wasn't like a true study. It was just a review, but it's okay. a review of all the physique literature with Helms and Trexler and uh, Peter Fitch. And, um, and that is actually a really good resource because we wrote it in a way that like lay people should be able to understand it. It's a little long, but you can break it up into parts. Um, but yeah, that, and it's open access. It's free. You just, you can like Google it or follow me somewhere and it's there. Um, but yeah, that was a lot of fun to work with those guys and, and kind of figure out like, what do we want to recommend for these physique athletes in terms of ranges and post-competition and all this other stuff yeah i love that and I th i'll have you send me that link and i'll i'll post all the links in the show notes so people can go check it out but i think that stuff is so valuable for everybody in the coaching space because it, it's the closest thing that we can get to working with really anybody it doesn't matter if they're a bodybuilder or not like this is applying to fat loss and muscle growth period mm -hmm. and, and everybody who we work with almost everybody except the the few people that are like, I just want to get stronger or some people want to just feel better. But the majority is like, I want to look better naked. Like that's the goal, right? So whether you're competing or not, this stuff's going to apply. Um, and we can kind of dive into the first one if you want. The first one um, I love because I was excited to see because I'm a proponent of higher carb diets. Um, it doesn't mean low carb diets don't work. I still use those with some clients because um, like you mentioned, the the satiety effect with keto. I have some clients that it just works better with with a high fat. But I know for me personally, and and for a lot of people who are after more aesthetic approaches, I think a higher mm -hmm. carb approach works better. And I think the study kind of alluded to that being um, more common in bo successful bodybuilders, which would make us think that that's true. Yeah, yeah. And so this was um, this is one of my favorite studies, and it's just a survey study. Well, not just, but it, it is a survey study, which a lot of people don't value much. Um, but when we look at so this study was uh, Chappelle 2018. Um, he's actually a, a, a good researcher, a good bodybuilder himself. Um, but he just surveyed the nationals at British, our British National Bodybuilding Federation at nationals, right? And so you're looking at high level competitors, like people who are winning titles and things and so these are, are you know the upper echelon of, of physique athletes and you know I just gave them a simple survey it was like you know what's your nutrition been like over the past prep what are so some of them track body fat and things like that um, what kind of habits did you have what kind of supplements did you take or you know just just kind of getting a feel for what they're doing because they're winning right um, and then after he got all the data he split them into top five finishers, right? So these are the people we really want to be. And then the people who didn't place, right? Still probably really good athletes, but not quite as good. 
And like you mentioned, one thing that kind of stuck out was the people who finished top five ate more carbs. And so I'm thinking, I'm kind of looking at this paper and as I was rereading it, I was like, okay, well that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Um, And it's all, all the measures are normalized to body size or body weight, right? So it's grams per kilogram. And the ranges for for pretty much everybody in the study were 2.7 grams of protein to 3.3. Like they're all in that range. Um, the carbs range from four to 5.1 or something, um, which grams per kilogram, that's a lot of carbs. Um, and then the fat, which is something that I've written about recently, but was pretty low. It was at like 0.8 per kilogram it didn't really change across the 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 prep um in males it changed a little bit in females it dropped from 0.8 to 0.6 but so that's not to cut you off that's like what like point or i'm sorry two point uh five grams per pound maybe yeah that, that lower range to give you some um like more realistic numbers stop talking kilograms at you. I think it was like 40 to 50 grams of fat for those males um, and probably 30 to 40 grams for the females. Um, But yeah, so this just tells us, all right, well, we have some survey data to show that maybe high carb diets are a little bit better. Maybe they help you place better. Um, The the prep length, like you mentioned, (laughs) the prep length has just expanded and kept on expanding. <laughs> I think my my, first, my 2016 prep was 36 weeks, and my 2019 prep was 30. Um, and these competitors were averaging about 22 weeks, plus or minus nine weeks was the standard deviation. Um, but yeah, I just, I thought that was a, like anybody could go read that study. I'm pretty sure it's open access too. Um, and just get some insight to what these elite bodybuilders and physique athletes are doing and that was the basis of our whole recommendation paper was hey let's use there's a couple other surveys like this let's use these survey data and say okay this is what bodybuilders are doing at the elite level so now we can tie in the scientific data of you know there's a study showing that one protein intake versus another the higher one's better okay so now we can say these two together say maybe we should have higher intake because we've got both sides of the equation. Um, so that was kind of the fun part of the review. Um, but yeah, so that first study, I don't know if I missed anything major, but there's a lot of stuff in it. Yeah. Do you, I guess the one thing I would ask is like, A, is there anything else that you saw that stood out to you that is at least worth people understanding to implement? And then the second thing is like, why do you think that the higher carb approach led to uh, more muscle maintenance throughout the process. And I would, I would probably venture to say that if it led to more muscle maintenance during an off season, it would probably lead to more muscle growth. Now, is that because there's an inverse relationship with insulin and cortisol and maybe we have less stress placed on the body? Is it because they just trained harder because they had more fuel? Is it because there's a muscle protein synthetic response? Like, is there anything that would tell you like, oh, that makes sense because of this exact thing? Or do you think it's just like, oh, they probably just had more fuel in the tank in the gym? Um, well, so uh, there's two, two things. I think, you know, like you've mentioned earlier, the, the workouts were probably better. Higher carb intake tends to lead to better workouts. Um, the cortisol thing, I'm not sure about that one. Um, I think the next study gets into that a little bit and you'll see that there's not many changes in cortisol. Um, but 
was I going to say? I think there is definitely some influence on training and damn, I lost it. Training training is probably, I think people forget like how important training intensity is to maintain muscle because a lot of people think about eating protein as the way to increase muscle protein synthesis, which is something we want during a cut, right? But people forget that training resistance training has that same effect on our body. That's a a very big stimulus for muscle protein synthesis. Do you, do you think that that's something people need to focus more on is like, because obviously like, and that's, it's a, it's a double edged sword because as we go on a diet, it becomes harder and harder to keep intensity high yet. It becomes more and more important. Yeah, I I think it is. It is more important. And that was the other thing I was going to mention was the uh, MPS response. So, we have enough science now to tell us that carbs don't really influence the protein synthetic response much. So I don't think there's a lot going on in that aspect. Um, I just gave a lecture on MP, uh, muscle protein synthesis and I was looking at it and I was like, you know, initially we thought, and the bros back in the eighties and nineties, they would have their shake with, you know, quick sugar. And you look at the, the data, back then and you're like no that's exactly what the data said like they were doing the right thing they were just following science but now 20 years 30 years later it's like well actually it wasn't the carbohydrate it was just they weren't eating enough protein or they were giving it slightly differently than it should be given um or it wasn't like the full complement of proteins Um, so i don't think there's a huge difference there but i do i would you know double down on the training aspect for sure um there was also, a, and since it was normalized, the carbohydrate intake was normalized to body weight, there could also be a higher muscle mass in those people, which you would expect in the top five, right? And so if you have higher muscle, you can probably eat more carbs. Um, so I think that that might be a little bit of it, but I think there was a big enough difference between the groups to say, you know, I'm okay with higher carbs. It's funny because I remember writing a blog about carbohydrates at least two years ago. It was a while ago. But like one of the arguments I made was what you were just saying. And there was some research that made you believe that. But this is a good example of, of the diet breaks too. Like this is what we think, but we just need more research. Like everything needs more than one study to be like for sure. You know what I mean? Like even if we go back to SECO, like calories in versus calories out, how many studies have been like have have been done to prove like yep this is really like the biggest thing that matters this is always going to overrule um and and i'm sure when the first study came out there was plenty of people who were not in the seco camp that were like no that's not how it works look at this look at this but over time as more research comes out i think we can have more uh indefinite decisions on these type of things yeah and and as an academic um too i will always put that line in my papers because i just enjoy doing research i'm like so you you want me to write in a paper somewhere that we don't like case closed we're done we're done here just walk away like i would get murdered (laughs) um so so i'm not i'm not gonna do that and i i definitely agree with you um more we need more we just don't we just need more there's more you can find out that's the the nice thing about science is everything builds on each other so learn a little bit oh now let's test this yeah. Well, and I think it's funny too. Um, you, you're probably uh, familiar with mass research review and anybody listening would recognize this too, but 
Um, I encourage anybody who is or who isn't go go subscribe. It's great. But those of you who are always go down to the bottom of their write up and look at um, like applications and takeaways. I think it is. It always starts with, I would like to see blah, 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 because they're always like, next time, I think we should do that. Next time we should do more research. And it's because exactly what you said, there's always going to be something that pops in the researcher's head, like, or the reviewer's head, like, this would be cool, or this would give us more info. And, and I think it's, that's, again, that's what makes me so excited about having you on the team is because it's constantly evolving and it's so fun for me to absorb it. Um, especially because I'm a geek at heart. I'm subscribed to all the research reviews I have been for years. So the fact that I have somebody on my team that does that too is, is really cool. Um, but cool. I think that that study is, is, I think you explained it well. I think that's really applicable to people. I think the biggest takeaways are um, carbs can be pretty important for muscle maintenance, possibly just through performance, but nonetheless, it is what it is. And it might be something that you, you want to utilize. Um, it gives some good recommendations on like the minimum amount of fat needed, um, inside of your diet. Um, and, and I think that's important for people because as keto got more, uh, got bigger, I think a lot of people, especially in the general pop started assuming that more fat meant like better health or better hormones. And I think there's mm -hmm. like a misconception there where people are like, Oh, well, you know, I need at least 50 grams fat, but if I consume 80, I'm going to supercharge my testosterone. And it's like, well, oh, man, <laughs> I don't think that's the case. Um, and, and actually that's a good question for you is, is that, and then also does it actually have more to do with just calories? Cause I see a lot of studies that talk about like the hormonal effects and keeping fat up and so on and so forth. And I'm like, they're in a deficit. So I think no matter what their fat's going to be, they're probably going to see some, some adaptations over time because that's just part of what happens when you diet. Yeah. And I think when I wrote the, the recommendations paper with the guys, um, I think we kind of saw that we were like, you know, there's the idea that testosterone drops off or your hormones drop off because of just your fat intake lowering when you have your calories dropping off, like by six or 700, plus you're doing all this cardio, um, plus you have stress, like, I don't think fat matters as much as people think. I do, like, I know you need a certain level, right? There are fat-soluble vitamins that you really, really need. Um, but to say there's a big difference between 50 grams and 80 grams, probably not, um, you know, unless it's an adherence effect. Uh, when dieting, to say, you know, I'm at 15% of my calories are fat, versus 10% of my calories are fat. I don't, I don't know if that's really going to matter that much. Um, so yeah, I, I probably know, I will say, I know the least about fat of the macronutrients, but I am um, pretty confident that it's more to do with calories than fat intake specifically. Yeah. yeah. Um, a few things to just add on to that before we move on to the next one. First and foremost, uh, coach Lisa on our team just wrote a blog. She sent to me this morning. That'll come out uh, as this airs tomorrow it'll be out tomorrow um and she it's like five thousand words of just about fat it's literally like Ooh, i think nice. we're calling it the complete guide on fat dietary fats um and she did a really good job breaking down all the just different types of fats and what to focus on and the recommendations depending on your goal and so on and so forth so um i just reviewed it this morning i was like this is amazing so i'm excited to get that out um the other thing I was going to say too, is like, I think that a percentages of your diet are good for like, Hey, like you probably shouldn't go below this percentage of your calories and fat during a deficit. But I think it's important for people to remember too, that that's all relative on the calorie 
intake. So people are like, well, I need at least 20% of my fat from, uh, or my calories from fat. Right. And it's like, well, you're in a huge surplus to gain weight. You really don't need to focus on that. Just get, you know what I mean? So like, even for me, I'm below 20% right now, but I'm in a surplus trying to gain size and and we're leaving more room for carbs because I function better that way. Um, so that's a, that's a good thing for people to remember too. And then the last thing is, um, just an observation, uh, I can think of one guy specifically, um, he's actually, uh, our intern getting into ready work with us, but I, um, prepped him for a show, um, and he won, uh, and he actually got a chance to compete for his pro card. Unfortunately, didn't get first on that and didn't get his pro card, but, um, but he won the first show. And, uh, I remember taking him out of the diet afterwards and he literally could like, he was like, I felt things change when I got just below 50 grams. Like I think the lowest we got as fat was like 45 grams. But he was like, as soon as we did below 50, I immediately started feeling it. But as soon as we reversed and got me back to like 55, 60, I felt so much better. And it was like, I don't know if that was a mental thing or if he just had that like threshold where it just clicked in, but um, just food for thought for people listening. Yeah, definitely. And and there are, I mean, fat's really important for a lot of things, but I do like your point about um, percentages. You have to be careful. The reason we put those as a percentage fat specifically into the um, recommendations for physique athletes is because I didn't feel comfortable saying you need 0.9 grams per kilogram or you need a specific number. Um, I just don't think there's enough good data to give like a, a, a kind of cut off like we did with the other ones, even a, a bigger range, but yeah. Um, yeah. I used to say 0.4 grams per pound. And then I was like, you know what? There's a lot of times where it's like 0.3 is totally fine. And then yeah. I've even been like, man, like 0.25 is fine. But you know what I mean? So I think you're totally right. Like it really is just so dependent on the individual. Um, let's bring up the next study that you had. Um, I believe this is, is kind of similar, but it, it's looking at more of the adaptations that occurred during a deficit, I believe. Yeah. Well, so this one is, um, so we had the first one was like pre-contest. This one's a little bit more post-contest. Got it. Um, and this one's actually from Trexler. So he's the first author on this. And this was during his PhD work, I think. Um, but until this study came out, this is 2017, we, ha- we didn't have a lot of good studies showing what happens after a prep. Because if you've ever talked to someone coming out of prep, they are like super hungry all the time. They, are, they feel like they're gaining muscle and they're, because they're training really well. Um, and they have all of these kind of like issues going on. So this study followed, I think it was 15 physique athletes right before their competition, like a week after. So a week before, so that's a week before the competition, which means they didn't have any peak week measurements, which is really important because people do some crazy stuff during peak week. Um, a week after their competition. So that's like, okay, I had my, my pseudo binge after a competition. I've had a week to kind of get back to normal, find maintenance and start training and, you know, I'm more like what I'm going to be for the next couple of weeks. So a week after competition. And then a, another um, outcome at four to six weeks post-competition. And it's the window is there. It's four to six weeks because they had to get the people into lab and stuff. And it gets a little hectic with scheduling. Um, but basically what they saw was post-competition, right? You see an increase in body weight. It's like, duh. Uh, the first week after their competition they had an increase in lean mass but that was probably because they were eating more like that they didn't actually gain any muscle um because when you look at the last time points so four to six weeks post competition 
they didn't, there was no lean mass changes. So that means that they kind of had this rebound after um, they refed for a week and they kind of just leveled out, right? But what happened during that period, that four to six week post-competition, they were gaining fat. It's like pretty much pure fat, um, which is very much needed, right? You want to get back to a homeostasis. You want to be able to maintain your weight. You want to um, let your hormones recover, which is another thing they looked at. So they measured testosterone, um, ghrelin, and leptin. So ghrelin and leptin are hunger hormones. Leptin inhibits hunger. And then ghrelin kind of increases your appetite. And so what they found was um, basically you know, leptin didn't really change much. Uh, testosterone started to rebound in the guys a little bit. So you, I think there's like a 20% increase four to six week post, which matches some other literature, um, but it wasn't fully recovered uh, if you compare it to other studies. They didn't have a, a super pre-time point, so it's, you can't compare it directly. But hormones tend to recover somewhere between four and six months after prep. Um, so this kind of matches that. Uh, this was like one of the first studies on post-competition period, like I said. Um, their metabolic rate, so when you diet, you mentioned earlier your metabolic rate drops a little bit more than we predict it would and it's not much it's like 10 to 15 percent um, but that actually rebounded because after competition they were overeating so their metabolic rate if you overeat your metabolic rate increases now it won't increase at a rate that you won't gain fat but it does increase and we know that from the overfeeding literature basically where they fed people a bunch um, so that's kind of what they found. They just they just said, you know, these people gain fat. It's probably due to this drive from ghrelin in hunger. So they're hungry all the time. And if you, like I said, if you've ever prepped, you're just hungry for like three months. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, and then they gained a little muscle, but they didn't gain any extra muscle. And you can assume that they're training, right, during that period. And if there was a time, some people feel like, they're going to gain a bunch of muscle, especially a week after prep. They're like, oh, I'm, I'm, in, I'm ready. I'm recovered. And you're not really recovered. Yeah. So um, that was a, a thought for a long time was like, oh, I get out post-competition rebound. And it's really just a post-competition like glycogen hydration. Yeah. I think a lot of people, I remember it being like, that's your anabolic window, essentially. <laughs> like you're, you're insulin sensitive and you need to gym. And and I, I think I want to say it was Lane Norton who said this, but he was like, yeah, your fat cells are anabolic as well. So like, don't be too trigger happy with the food post-competition. Um, I, uh, I wrote a blog um, probably a couple months ago on reverse dieting and metabolic adaptation. And I highly encourage people to go check that out. I'll link in the show notes because I do talk about this effect during a deficit and how your metabolism does adapt um, and how it might not be something that needs to scare you because it makes sense. You lose weight, you have less mass, you need less calories to survive. It's, it's pretty simple. Um, but there's some good resources in there as well. Um, I think I linked to a couple different uh, research studies and, and also uh, Eric Trexler's, Trexler's blog, which if you want to read a book, <laughs> it's like 26,000 words. So, but it's good. I actually printed it out because I was like, okay. I'm going to actually like highlight this and like read it. Um, but it's really, really good. But um, I'll link those in the show notes for people to check out just so you can get more information. Um, my question for you would be kind of like applying this to the general population. Like what do you see being the most valuable information inside that for people to listen to? Because I know a lot of people will go, oh, well, I'm not 
prepping and those people take it to extremes. I'm not going to have those effects, but I'd have a lot of people consider that, you know, when I get on the phone with somebody and they're like, Oh, I've been trying to diet for a year and a half. And you know, like the deficit never works. And I really look at their food logs and I look at what they've been doing. I'm like, you kind of have been in a cyclical diet for the last year, two years. Yeah. That's going to have just as bad of an effect on you as a 12 to 20 week prep will. Um, it's not as extreme in the short term, but it's even more extreme in the long term. And I think people need to remember that as well. Yeah. And that, and we see that a lot. Like I've, throughout my career, I've seen that where you're just kind of losing the same five pounds over and over again. Um, and for kind of practical purposes, I think, you know, there's some other literature that shows for every I think it's pound, it might be kilogram, I can't remember right now. For every pound you lose, your appetite increases like 90 calories worth. And so you have this divergence, right? So where you're losing weight, say you lose 20 pounds. Well, that's not super abnormal. Most people can lose at least 10 and, and that's where they wanna be at, somewhere in there. Um, but now you have this monstrous calorie increase where you're like, I'm hungry all the time. And so I think, um, Changing your food types can help. So food volume helps a little bit. Um, being prepared to just be like, okay, this is my maintenance. I'm gonna sit here and I'm gonna reverse diet out of it. Not to do anything specifically metabolic, but I want to find my new maintenance and I want to feel good. And I need to make sure that I don't binge or overeat because I've lost all this weight and now I'm hungry. Yeah. Um, and it can be like, a, doesn't have to be 20 pounds like a bodybuilder it can be like five pounds with some people so um just being aware that it happens and adjusting your food choices maybe is, is pretty big from what i've seen yeah i would agree i think i did a uh, podcast i think it aired last week as this is going out and i and i called it cody rants and i just went on some topics and somebody like sent me this thing about like their confusion on a calorie being a calorie is a calorie really just a calorie depending on what you eat and my whole thing was like Logically speaking, yes, a calorie is a calorie, but I think we have to remember that going into a deficit or doing a reverse diet or anything, these things, you have to look at the composition of those calories in order to get the most out of those calories. So how, like if you're used to eating five meals a day and that works great for you, but now you're in a 500 calorie deficit, you might want to maybe have like a 12 hour fasting window. So you bring your meals closer together, have bigger meals, but less meals per day that might have a more or more uh, satiety promoting effect on you, even if it's just mentally. Um, or like you said, like uh, more filling calories, more voluminous food. So um, a sweet potato versus a Pop-Tart is kind of like always my comparison. Like yeah. what's going to be more filling, not only from a nutrient perspective, but just the size of a sweet potato is going to fill you up more. And I think that's pretty obvious. And the calories can be the same and the weight loss effect can be the same, but that sweet potato might actually allow you to adhere better long-term. And this is kind of always my argument against flexible dieting is like flexible dieting is important, but being too flexible can actually hurt you because now you're trying to play macro Tetris and fit all these things in your diet. And it's hard for you to adhere because you're not satiated. You're not getting the nutrients you need. Maybe digestion isn't great. Um, this is where my argument for eating like a bro actually, I think holds up really well. Cause it's like, eating like a bro most of the time or just whole minimally processed foods might be better for adherence. Um, but always keeping in mind that flexibility matters because when the weekend hits and you do want to go have a burger, go for it. But like, I think there's that balance you need to find. Yeah. And, and I agree. I, I honestly like a bro most of the time, but like we have 
pizza and beer on Friday nights, and that's not bro. I mean, well, it is kind of, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Different kind of bro. <laughs> Different kind of bro. Um, but yeah, yeah. I think if you get to uh, macro tetracy, you can actually, you know, that's steering towards like a eating disorder, right? Okay. So you don't really want to go that way. Um, and in our review on physique athletes, a big part of it is um, the mental aspect, which definitely not my area of expertise, but is really, really important of like, controlling disordered eating because if you start a prep or even if it, you start a diet there's a higher chance of you having disordered eating issues so you know some, something important yeah and i think there's a, there's kind of a fine line between uh eating disorders and disordered eating and i think a lot of people they don't consider disordered eating as something different they just think oh i don't have an eating disorder but a disordered eating, I would say, is is a less of a degree, but it's it's something that's more prevalent than people realize. I think more and more people actually do have disordered eating, and they don't realize it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I I definitely agree with you there. Um, so, I love it, man. I think that's uh, that kind of covers everything that we can we can hammer out on this first podcast. Um, it was it was cool to introduce you. I'm I'm glad people get to uh get to know who our cso is now and and get to know your story a little bit and, and see your expertise and um uh, before we leave like the last question i'll ask you is and, and i've kind of already shared my uh, opinion on this but what is the impact you want to create being in this position i think this some people it, that are more of our colleagues reach out to me like dude that's awesome brandon's a great guy that's a good move and the other people are like what's a cso like what are you doing and it's like kind of this new thing and i'm like it's important for people to see these kind of things. Cause I think it's really important for companies to have stuff like this. So, so what is your, like, what do you want your role to be as far as impact? Yeah. So I just want to help like our coaches and anyone listening, any of our followers, right. Understand how we can apply science to practice. Um, to put it simply, um, we're not going to, you know, take one study and make these profound claims. We're going to kind of stay patient, consistent, and, and, really conservative in applying the science um, to athletes and, and help our coaches understand. And I mean, your coaches are already pretty, pretty dang smart. Um, so I, I don't know how much I can teach them, but just be a, a resource, you know, for everybody. And if you guys have questions, like your, whoever's listening right now, you can DM me or email me or however you want to contact me. And I'll try to get back to you, you know, as soon as I can. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'll link, I'll, I'm going to link all the studies we talked about uh, as well as the blog that, Brandon just wrote for us uh, in the show notes. Um, I will link his Instagram and everything like that. So you guys can get a hold of him. And then for the members and the clients listen to this, he is actually in our Facebook group as well. Um, so we have access to him there for help as well. So feel free to tag him um, and ask him questions and, and we'll, we'll probably figure out a way to do Q and A's and stuff in there eventually. But, um, but awesome, man, this was great. Thank you for your time today. Oh, thanks for having me, Cody. And I'm so excited to join your team. Man. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. 
This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at Cody at BoomBoomPerformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.